So this is today. Today is yesterday and tomorrow is also today. You traveled through time to the present. Yes. Yeah, I don't think you get how time travel works. It's like we're stuck. You know, like a, like a needle on a scratch record. I wake up every day right here, right in Punxsutawney, and it's always February 2nd. It's one of those infinite time loop situations you might have heard about. It's a thing where the same day keeps happening. Time. in a damn time loop or something well it's groundhog day again and that must mean that i'm professor robert e.g black and i'm here with father david mallory here to discuss groundhog day again still isn't it just once a year for me it's like every day <laughs> if i'm not watching groundhog day or talking about groundhog day my blog ended and I'm still I'm watching the time loop thing all the time. There are so many just waiting on my watch list still. Well, thank you for having me along for this go around yeah. this uh, Groundhog Day. This movie you'd seen before. Yes. Groundhog Day was one of it's one of the earliest movies I can remember watching and understanding that it was trying to say something mm. about the human condition. It was it was a it wasn't just a piece of entertainment. Right. This was something that was funny. It was a comedy, both in the mm -hmm. classic sense that everything ends well, but also in the sense that ha, Bill Murray's in this movie and he's funny. Yeah. But also that there was a deeper philosophical argument being made it was one of the things that got me to affirm my interest in philosophy and you know eventually my theological studies as a priest and kind of helps lay the foundation for what I'm doing now by being so involved in the movies by minutes community that yeah. while not every movie sets out with the same intentionality as Groundhog no. Day, still all of these movies being made by humans are trying to say things about being yep. human. And that's something I'm very interested in as well. Yeah. And even if the movie doesn't seem to be trying to say it itself, you can usually interpret what some author involved thought about right. the human condition. Mm -hmm. Or I know in my blog, I always said, like, every movie tells you about gender relations at the time it was made mm -hmm. in some way or another. And it tells you about society and what the director, the writer, or both thought of these things. Mm -hmm. In this case, Harold Ramis was... I don't know how practiced he was at it, but he was a Buddhist. Mm -hmm. And I know Danny Rubin went into this trying to write a sort of universal story about a young man's journey through life. And then that conflated with a time loop story and created a genre basically out of a story we'd had some versions of before, but mm -hmm. this was the first big one. Yeah, because that's one of my notes about this minute is that Phil has not seen Groundhog Day and so therefore does not know how to act when right. he finds himself in a time loop. Yeah, you don't do these things. I mean, this is only the first resumption of the timeline. Right. So he doesn't know what's happening yet. Yeah, that's the thing. You make a movie about someone from 2022 who is caught in a time loop. They're going to know immediately. Oh, I'm in a time loop. I'm in Groundhog uh -huh. Day. Okay. Because it, it's so seeped into... I can only speak to the Western American European consciousness, but it's so seeped into our Western consciousness that should God forbid we ever find ourselves in a time loop, like, oh, okay, it's Groundhog Day. All right. I know yep. what I need to do. 
I know what the consequences are. I know what I can get away with. <laughs> if this actually happened to me, I would never trust it enough to do anything horrible, though. Right. I would really want to test the boundaries, but I'd be like, no, if someone was able to reverse time, that means there's a someone. Mm -hmm. Even though in this movie, I don't think this movie is making that argument. It's more about just how we're like a little powerless against life and aging and everything around us if we don't try to pay attention. Yeah. But you can interpret it other ways, obviously. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's one of the things I like about Grand Hog Day, you can get into these arguments. There seems to be, there seems to be some will that is trying to govern Phil's life because he cannot get out of Puxatani for love or money. Exactly. No matter how hard he tries. And so that constraining of space, in addition to the constraining of time, mm -hmm. speaks to me of a of a will, of a someone. Yeah. You know, Listeners can guess who I might uh, be thinking of when I when I talk about that. Nathan, obviously. <laughs> oh, that rascal. <laughs> Always running his experiments. This was an early experiment of his. <laughs> and Punxsutawney wasn't that big a deal then. I mean, they get a few thousand people, I think, for Groundhog Day prior to the film coming out. Now they get tens of thousands, I believe. Mm -hmm. Doubles the size of the if town. If you think the uh, Groundhog-themed trash can lid that we see mm. in, uh, in Minute 22, was that something for the movie? or did yes. Puxatani have that already? I'm pretty sure those were made for the movie. And I mentioned this several episodes ago, but one of them appears in the movie Wes Craven's New Nightmare. Oh. I believe Wes Craven himself may have owned it. Wow. And bought it as like a memorabilia thing because I know there's a local family in Woodstock, Illinois that own a lot of stuff that was in this movie. Oh. But some of it got probably auctioned off at some point. Hmm. I should look into that. That's near my neck of the woods. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That is interesting to me. There's there's an art-life relationship question there that the movie had to make Puxatani more kitschy yeah. to make Phil hate Groundhog Day more. And I would not be surprised if Puxatani then leaned all the way into that. Yes. For the sake of that sweet, sweet tourist dollar. A, a lot of the banners, I believe, are straight copies of things they had in Puxatani. Okay. Or I've only seen pictures after and they copied it from the movie. I don't know which came first. Mm-hmm. They did specifically pick this town because it was enclosed. Uh, they wanted a town square. Gobbler's Knob is outside town. Yeah. They wanted it right in the middle and to have a contained space that we could understand as the movie progressed. Mm -hmm. Physically confining as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This minute starts when he's leaving the Cherry Street Inn and he's just told Mrs. Lancaster that his chance of departure is 75, 80. 75, yeah. It was 100% yesterday. <laughs> Checking out today, 75% 80. So I, I love that line because... It, that's still like, well, that's still like a pretty good chance of checking out, but mm -hmm. he's only 25% unsure about what's going on. Yeah. He's like, something's wrong, so I can't be 100%. Yeah, I do love... It's such a, a brilliant writing choice to make the morning DJ program be the anchor for mm -hmm. the loops and to make Phil a broadcast journalist himself. Yep. And so you can have that great, I know we already talked about it, but that great scene like, oh, it's yesterday's tape, boys. Mm -hmm. That That's just a great little character detail. Yeah, he notices and thinks about what it means. That's one of the things I love about this movie is that the movie thinks about, okay, who is Phil Connors? And what does he do and how does it impact him? So he sees the life through a broadcast journalism lens and he notices things that I wouldn't necessarily notice mm -hmm. because if I wake up and it's the morning, you know, zoo crew or whatever, it's like, oh, okay, I'm just, I'm just waking up and I'm groggy and I wouldn't notice it necessarily the first right. time through, but having that as an aspect of his character clues the audience and that who may be suspecting like, this sounds kind of familiar, but I don't know. It clues <laughs> the audience and like, no, something weird is going on. And a lot of that came by chance. 
It was actually on my birthday, January 29th, when Danny Rubin was planning his script and he was trying to think of a holiday to set it on. Mm. Literally the next one in his calendar was Groundhog Day. Mm -hmm. And then he's like, I knew that weather people go and do reports from Punxsutawney. I'm like, okay, my main guy's a weatherman. Yeah. And it fit perfectly because that's a guy whose job is to be able to predict the future. Yeah. And now he can't, at least immediately, predicts the future really well later. Yeah. Yeah, when a weatherman gives you a 75, 80% chance, I'm counting on that. That's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But it's not 100. So he's going down. He goes outside, takes a few steps and stops. Mm -hmm. The woman who stops and talks to him is, of course, Mary, the piano teacher, who we will meet better later in the film. Mm. He's like, where is everybody going? And so she gets to be the one that tells him to gobble it up. It's Groundhog Day. Ah, well, of course, a piano teacher would give him the key to understanding what's going on. All right. I'm sorry. I'll see myself out. (laughs) We don't go for puns around these parts. Oh, sorry. Oh, no. Well, part of this scene that I love is Phil beginning to realize something is wrong, but he comes to it so gently Mm -hmm. that it's almost like he did throw a guy against the wall. He did. Yeah. (laughs) So now now he's out in public. He's trying to piece together that what he was told after he grabbed someone by the lapels is actually true. Mm -hmm. And I can understand like if I were in this position, I would understand trying to rationalize this. Maybe Groundhog's Day is a multi-day thing in Punxsutawney, and I never knew that before. Okay, one, I'm still sleeping, and this, I'm just dreaming it. Two, it's a prank, and everyone's in on it. Three, it's a flashback from when I was 20, and ate magic mushrooms and thought I was Aquaman. It's some kind of reality show about forecasters, bad bed and breakfast and snow. Five, I've had a stroke and lost my memory of the years since last Groundhog Day. Come on, Phil, wake up, get it together. It must be the weather, it must be the stress. I just need a moment, I just need a rest. It's so big here. They've made it two days. Mm-hmm. To be fair, in Woodstock, Illinois, the year I went, 2014, the events lasted from, I think it was Wednesday night until Sunday afternoon. And Groundhog Day was Sunday. That's a proper festival. So right there. there was like a dance Friday night. That was when I got in. And then they had the breakfast, the bowling. They had the free showing of the movie. Oh, of course. And the walking tour of locations was, what, three different days in a row, I believe. Wow. So a lot going on. That's cool. That appeals to uh, my Catholic sensibilities within the, the Catholic Church. We have kind of intentional Groundhog Day kind of loops mm. because for the big celebrations of things like Christmas and Easter in the church calendar, we observe what are called octaves, eight days that in our prayers and common worship in the church are supposed to be the same day, liturgically speaking. In terms of the liturgy of the church, you have Christmas on the 25th, and then it's still Christmas on the 26th, and it's still Christmas on the 27th. Huh. And the same thing with Easter. You have Easter Sunday, but then you have Easter Monday and Easter Tuesday. Right. Because in the, the church's understanding, it's less of a time loop and more of a sense that this event is so significant, we can't contain it to one 24-hour period. <laughs> We're going to spread it out over these eight days, because not even seven days is enough. We're not going to go to the full week. We're going to do the fullness of time, eight days, because eight in the Bible is a sign of completeness, of going beyond and reaching perfection in God's plan. Right. The other thing that, that reminds me of 
there are pilgrimage sites in the Holy Land in and around Jerusalem, where if a priest goes to celebrate at a Catholic church built on, say, the, the site of the crucifixion, it is always the same day liturgically there as well. You are always celebrating the feast of the exaltation of the cross, or if huh. one celebrates inside the tomb, inside the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, it is always Easter Sunday. So the space dates the time. Exactly. Huh. Yeah. So it's kind of like what's happening here in Groundhog Day because the space of Punxsutawney is for Phil, at least, instituting what time it's going to be. <laughs> There's a moral aspect to it as well that Phil's choices have some kind of influence on what's happening to him. Right. Well, yeah, as I classify when we do time loops of the week, this is the Connors loop where to get out, you have to be better. Mm -hmm. You have to be a better person, whatever that means in terms of the story. Mm -hmm. It's not about cause. It's not a sci-fi movie. Yeah. It's about him improving himself, which even if he was stuck physically, you got that's Cars or Doc Hollywood or a few other movies where someone's just stuck in a small town and they have to realize it's okay. Mm -hmm. These hicks aren't that bad. <laughs> Hell, they drive a bunch of Cadillacs, apparently. So many Cadillacs. So many. Yeah, passing Mary is one. And then when we cut to the street, it's a different Cadillac. Yeah. It's kind of the same color, but it is a different Cadillac. One's a Coupe de Ville, one's an Eldorado. Yeah, that was, I, I don't know. There's something I always get pleasure out of seeing what the cars look like in a movie because mm -hmm. nothing dates a movie more than the cars in it. And it's, it, yeah. you can't, it is almost impossible just to have generic cars. <laughs> you could have a vague time period, but mm -hmm. yeah, it's even then these cars are from their, I think they're a 1990 and a 1988 or something like that. Correction. 1989 and 1983. Oh, yeah. So they're a few years old when they're filming this. Yeah, prime late 80s, early 90s, just boxes on wheels. Mm -hmm. Oh, man. What were we thinking? <laughs> well, it's what we could make. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shoot. People are dying. We got to make these safe. Build them like tanks. Yeah. And they're big and square because we can make them faster that way. Mm -hmm. Now we have different methods. So now we have robots like Ava who yeah. allow us to have curved cars. Yep. Isn't that nice? That's what robots are for. <laughs> Don't tell them. Robots listening to the show in the future. That was a joke. You've already heard me talk about how I thank Siri every time. <laughs> and Siri will, she'll vouch for me. <laughs> <laughs> she remembers. Our first Empress Siri. <laughs> yeah. Uh, where are we? It's still just once a year, isn't it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then go to the street, Cadillac to Cadillac. He comes by the fellow who's panhandling on the street. Oh, yeah. And he does the fake pat pockets. Oh, pockets, I don't yep. have my wallet Classic. on me, which he did last time. But I, what I what I found really interesting, it's very subtle because of Bill Murray's acting here. He goes through that motion, but then he has this weird look of guilt because he looks at the guy and there's this moment like, oh, he's going to recognize me. From yesterday. Realized, yeah. from yesterday and realized <laughs> that I did this yesterday too. And he's not going to believe me that I don't have my wallet two days in a row. <laughs> and just that little bit of, of acting and reaction and, and the half-hearted uh, abandonment of the act caught my attention. And it's something where actually I was just driving today and there was a fellow with a sign by the side of the road going up and down the turn lane asking for money. And I rolled down my window and I talked with him for a little bit and, and gave mm. him a little bit of something. I was glad I was able to do that because for the last week or so, I didn't have any cash 
on me, mm. which is unusual for me. I'm not, I'm not a typical like millennial. Oh, I never have cash. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm not, I know there are a lot of people who just don't have cash on them, but for professional reasons, I, I, I tend to carry cash on me. Mm. But that feeling of, oh, I don't have something to give to this person. There's that moment of relationship that's recognized there where there's a person in need and I know how to meet that need. I know how to give them what they want, yeah. but there's something in me that resists that where I'm unwilling to go outside of myself to do it. And Phil's little moment of, oh, oh my gosh, what's he going to think of me? It was something I could relate to having passed a couple of people without having any money in my wallet and being unable to reach out to that person in need at the time. Right. Speaking of signs, though, I would point out because I like the extras in this film and I was putting together a compilation of them when my blog was ending. The woman in the back, she's carrying it upside down right now, a sign that just says Phil. She currently still has a friend walking with her. Mm, interesting. That friend disappears later. <gasps> and I don't know how that happened. They've literally filmed this on like the same day over just over and Time over. Time loops have consequences. Uh-huh. Phil dies and she disappears. The extra I noticed is the John Candy looking fellow who oh, comes yeah. up in the blue coat and gives the guy money. I yep. a good guy in blue coat. And I just had an exclamation <laughs> mark in my nose. Like, yeah, all right. Yeah. And we'll see that guy. I think we see him around Gobbler's Knob. I don't think we ever see him at the diner. No. The script does identify. This is a problem I had with my blog is I got the versions of the script out of order. Mm. And in the final version of the script, we do find out the old man is called Old Jensen, which we do hear that in a deleted scene later. Mm -hmm. I always called him O'Reilly, which is what a different version of the script calls him at a different point. So I'm like, his name's Jensen O'Reilly. It's fine. <laughs> Strong Nordic and Irish heritage. Yeah. <laughs> And so we get Ned's introduction for the second time. Uh -oh. So much energy. Oh my gosh. I do love Ned as a character. He is mm -hmm. just the worst. He is so irritating. Yeah. But the energy and enthusiasm that he brings to this is amazing. And this is where I was talking about where Phil hasn't seen Groundhog Day because he doesn't know how to handle a time loop. So he's still engaging in social situations right? somewhat normally. He didn't like it the first time. He likes it less now, but he's still putting up with it. Yeah, because he's trying to shortcut the conversation by giving the answers that he couldn't give last time. Right. Remembering his name, mm -hmm. which, you know, mm. honestly is very impressive that Phil remembers Ned's name a day later yeah. because it, I could easily see Phil still not remembering who Ned is. Well, it's something this film has done just the last couple minutes since time, like with the radio show first, mm -hmm. is that he not only recognized it was the same show, he quoted it. Yeah. He says a line with them. And now he knows he remembers Ned mm -hmm. Ryerson. He sells insurance. He can remember. Right. And that he's a guy who can remember. Yeah. So that sets up part of the existential pain of the movie mm -hmm. is that Phil is really good at remembering. So he remembers everything. Yeah. And until he can make that into a good thing, mm -hmm. it's going to make it worse. Mm -hmm. Something the editing of the film gets around because, you know, we're jumping from day to day. You don't think about it at the time, but like when he's out on the trying to date Rita, he had to go through that whole day again before he gets back to try that toast again. Yeah. And we just jump because... That's more fun. Mm -hmm. He's stuck every day Shush. dealing with Ned with his bing. Oh, first mm -hmm. shot right out of the box. Yeah, Ned's so excited. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, this is why I love this guy. He's great. <laughs> yeah. What was Phil like in high school that Ned loves him so much? Because I can't imagine that Phil was nice to him. He literally asked him to stop dating his sister. Yeah. Like, it's not good, but he he's just excited. 
my no prize answer is that Phil was the cool guy on the high school speech team because <laughs> I think Phil did like radio or original oratory. He did some kind yeah. of public speaking thing in high school and Ned was also there and Ned was the, you know, he was the nerd of the speech team. He was just always trying too hard and <laughs> just maybe he lionized Phil a little bit because ah. Phil is just, he's very effortless. He's very professional. He's very polished. So there's a lot of natural talent that he has when it comes to public speaking. Right. Ned has to try. Yes. He's gotten good at trying, but he has to put the effort in and mm -hmm. latch onto people. Even now in adulthood, he's still trying too hard. Yeah. But it's all guileless. He's, he's completely in earnest oh, yeah. with all this. Even though he is also using it to try to sell insurance, he's also like excited because he saw this person or cynical side. Who else are you going to try to sell insurance to first? But when you see that guy you used to know in high school, you're like, oh, I'm making a sale this morning. <laughs> Could be. Remember me. I will stop talking to you as soon as you buy something. Yeah, but I guess Ned's a real rise and grind kind of guy, <laughs> even though he's in Punxsutawney and it's Groundhog's Day. He's going to out there. He's out on the streets. Well, yeah, he's working. Yeah, exactly. It seems like most of these people have the day off in Woodstock. Not the same. Yeah. Literally once the groundhog event happened and I think the, the breakfast was after it mm -hmm. and then everyone was just gone. Whoa. And I'm like, now what do I do? <laughs> I heard some of the things were on display at the library. So I'm like, I'm going to find out what the library is and walk there. And I ended up in a Buddhist temple at one point. It was a block off the square Oh, and talked to the woman there for a while about the movie. Nice. Because I had, everyone was gone. It was so strange to suddenly just have it be <laughs> quiet when there were crowds for days. And I came back into the square before six the next morning. Wow. Because <laughs> I'm like, I forgot to get a picture of something. I got to go back. Oh, there you go. Before I drive to the airport. I imagine you had the place to yourself. Yes. I mean, well, the Starbucks was open. Oh, well, of course. And so I went and got a coffee and then I went outside and it was negative three degrees, but I needed a picture of where he steps in front of the truck. It sure sounds like February in Illinois. Mm -hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. Very cold. At least Phil is dressed for it. And oh, I yeah. love Phil's outfit. Just a little bit of the collar and tie showing through underneath the scarf, which is still, even though he's not sure what's going on, he's put himself together very well. Oh, yeah. He put himself more together today than yesterday. Yesterday, he didn't put the jet, like the gloves on and the scarf until after he was outside. Oh, that's right. And now he had them when he got to the hallway. Mm, interesting. So he's feeling a little insecure, I think. Perhaps. Okay. I can control this. Mm -hmm. You know. Nodding the tie, putting the scarf, got the gloves. Okay. All right. I'm in control. This is going to be fine. <laughs> what day is it? I would have a question for you before we get to time loops of the week. Mm -hmm. Do Catholics deal with Candlemas at all? Candlemas. Yeah. Okay. So the, of course, for us in the Catholic church, February 2nd is the celebration of the presentation of the Lord, which is known by its old name of Candlemas. Yeah. The presentation of the Lord is always on February 2nd. It comes 40 days after the celebration of Christmas. And 40 is a, an important number in the Bible. Yeah. It represents a long but limited time. The Feast of Candlemas used to mark kind of the end of the Christmas season. Okay. Several Catholic cultures still preserve that tradition. For instance, in the Polish communities that I'm familiar with, they will keep singing Christmas carols all the way through <laughs> January, which I rather like that more than starting the Christmas music in, I don't know, October. Yeah. Now, I, it just gets earlier every year. Ugh. Anyway, and the feast, the presentation of the Lord marks the moment when Mary and Joseph bring the infant Jesus to the temple in Jerusalem. The Mosaic law stipulated that every firstborn child is meant to be consecrated to the Lord yeah. in recognition of what God did in the celebration of Passover, where God moved through the whole of Egypt, slaughtering all the firstborn, but sparing the Israelites. 
and therefore every firstborn male belongs to me, says God. And Mary and Joseph go to the temple to make the offering required for that consecration. And that moment in the temple is the first sign of what the mission of Jesus is going to be. Okay. As if the angels and shepherds and magi weren't enough. But anyway, we needed one more. <laughs> and that's when two prophet figures, Simeon and Anna, come forward. And from inside the Jewish perspective, because the angels, the shepherds, and the magi all kind of stand outside of the Jewish world yeah. to a certain extent. Anna and Simeon represent the expectation of Israel for the Messiah. And Simeon takes the child into his arms and says the nunc dimittis, a prayer that the church says every night as part of her liturgy of the hours. Now, Lord, let your servant go in peace. Your word has been fulfilled. My own eyes have seen the salvation which you have prepared in the sight of every people, a light to reveal you to the nations and the glory of your people, Israel. And that glory that Jesus is presents the fulfillment of what Israel was meant to be as a light to the nations. That Israel was supposed to be this people specially set apart by God who lived by laws unlike the rest of the surrounding nations. And the rest of the nations were supposed to take their cue from Israel. And you can hear this in some of the old prophets as the Israelites are coming out of exile and the prophets are saying, this is a good thing. This is a chance for us to make known to the nations the glory of God. Yeah. Anna says something similar, that fulfillment of Israel's desire. So the presentation of the Lord on February 2nd is this liminal feast. It is the ending of that hidden time, that time of expectation. And it's the beginning of a public revelation, the beginning of God making himself known in a new way in and through Jesus. And so I don't know if that really has anything to do with Groundhog Day, but there are similarities there for those who want to see it. I think I don't know about religiously. I mean, yeah, you could interpret that as this. Is this a time loop as a new way that God is testing? Whatever. Mm -hmm. I know in terms of like pagan tradition, the distance then between Christmas, which would have at one point been the winter solstice. Right. And 40 days later is the middle of winter where you do get a difference where the winter is either clearer or getting colder. Mm -hmm. And that affects then hibernating animals like groundhogs right. who come out to mate or not. Or, or just get held by a man in a top hat. Right. <laughs> and so on that side, it would definitely fit the timing of it. And in a religious sense, yeah, the presentation could also fit mm -hmm. the religious interpretation of this movie, mm -hmm. which there are many religious interpretations of this movie. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and so you introduce this by talking about it as Candlemas. So why is it called Candlemas? Yeah. The light to the nations that the church has associated that imagery of Christ as a light with the use of candles and the Catholic church believes in the good old ways of beeswax candles, you know, no, no, this electric candle nonsense. And at the feast of the presentation of the Lord, there's a blessing of candles that happens hmm. where candles meant for the altar or meant for prayers at home or the Easter candle, the Paschal candle that will burn throughout the Easter season as a sign of the light of the resurrected Christ. Those are blessed on this day, huh. and there is often a procession with lighted candles that happens in those communities where they really do up the presentation of the Lord. You walk into a Catholic church most years on February 2nd, and you know it's going to be a daily mass at about eight o'clock in the morning, and Father has like three meetings after mass, so it's not going to be as whoop-de-doo as a liturgy as <laughs> I would like it to be, but that's a question of pastoral prudence. What's going to be the best way to celebrate with this community, given the reality before it? Well, and that light to the world could be 
something you could take from this film is if we see the film as having a message for the rest of us, it is some sort of light, not as a Catholic sense, but in a more flippant, perhaps blasphemic sense, <laughs> Phil is that light for the rest of us. Well, I mean, to a certain extent, yeah, there, there's a flippant way to read that. But like I said, when we were talking about ex machina, what does it mean to be human, mm. to love right. and to give oneself away in love? And that's what Phil learns to do. Yeah, to care about the people. Exactly. Now, cynicism is a very powerful drug, so yes. it's possible to read the ending of the movie in a cynical way, but I don't think that's the best way to understand the <laughs> story. I don't think the, the film think, wants us to read it cynically. Right. <laughs> I think by the end of the movie, Phil actually has changed yes. as a person, and he is better for having invested himself and given himself away mm -hmm. to the people in Punxsutawney. And that, again, speaks to that question of how does one find light it's through a consuming. That's why the candle is a symbol of Christ, right. that the light is generated through the consuming of the wax, through the burning of something. And it only gives because there is something that is given away. An unlit candle sheds no light. And so a candle that is perfectly preserved and is unmelted is never going to light up a room. Uh, yes. <laughs> I like that. And also, it isn't entirely flippant in a way because, and I'll use this as my transition to Time Loop of the Week, movies don't have to be, you can be religious and still enjoy a movie. Yes, you know, I agree. Stories. stories are there to give, yeah, you are a great example <laughs> of that. Even if the movie is partly or potentially about religious things, mm -hmm. there is room to appreciate the story that it's trying to tell. And this is trying to tell a story about someone who has to be better and care about people around him, which is a good mm -hmm. thing. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't change so much that he's like unrecognizable. He's still sarcastic. He's still making fun of people, but he's not doing it meanly. Yeah. And so it's changed and he's there with them. He's not outside the group. He's now in the group. Yes. Yeah, exactly. I tell my students, I'm like, if I'm being sarcastic with you, it means I like you because <laughs> I will try to control that when the semester starts mm -hmm. and then I'll start being myself. <laughs> but speaking of movies, then most of life is just junk, right? It's, it's filler. And then there's these moments when all the randomness turns into something perfect. It's like life's dropping all the bullshit just for a second to show us how amazing it could be all the time if it wanted to. Hmm. I don't know. I think maybe we're supposed to become like better people. Though I honestly don't even know how that could be possible. Never think about it. We must miss so many of them. All those tiny perfect things are just poof, gone, lost forever. But not today. That is a disturbingly inspirational idea, Mark. Mm -hmm. It's a perfect day. We couldn't have planned it like this. Well, you can. It just takes an awful lot of work. Time. Time. The last revision is what counts, apparently. Time. What if we found Time. them all? All the perfect things in this Time. one town, Time. in this one day, we could collect them. My time loop of the week is not strictly speaking a time loop, though it does repeat, is 1950 Jean Cocteau version of the story of Orpheus. Hmm. Young man, always not that young. He's played by like a guy who's like 40 and looks like he's 60. A weird choice for this actor who has to go into the underworld to rescue the woman he loves mm. and fails because he doubt comes in. I On mm -hmm. Annihilation Minute, I quoted Hades Town, the musical about this a lot. Mm -hmm. They have a whole song called Doubt Comes In. Doubt comes in and strips the paint. Doubt comes in and turns the wine. 
specifically uses which at the time 1950 was a big deal a lot of like running the camera backward Mm. and so someone will put gloves on and you'll be like that looked really weird it's because later you'll see them taking them off and that's the motion you get Mm -hmm. and they just reversed it rather than put them on and take them off they use the same shots multiple times and they go into a mirror at the end he comes out of the mirror and it's just reversed and they play with a lot of trick photography of putting one actor in front of a screen the other actor is on Mm. so that when the screen is going in reverse the actor in the front isn't and is filming a whole new version of the scene and it was remarkable to watch i think it was on my watch list because of um, my interest in twin peaks Mm -hmm. it was a movie that david lynch liked and I can see why and things he took from it in playing with the flow of time plus the end of Twin Peaks season three is straight sort of riff on Morpheus. Yeah. It's not a strictly a time loop, but it's essentially movies as a time loop. Mm-hmm. One of the things I like about movies is you go back and watch a movie. It's mostly the same. It's not entirely the same because you're different. Mm-hmm. Your impression of it is different. Yeah. Like Ex Machina coming back a second time to watch it. You're going to see different things. Watching Groundhog yeah, Day yeah. hundreds of times, I see different things. And I still see new things now, mm-hmm. which is amazing to me. Uh, it's the reason that this project of Movies by Minutes is uh-huh. possible. Yeah. You're able to spend a minute looking at those movies and find something to talk about. Even uh, Pete and Alex from Star Wars Minute uh-huh. have floated the idea that maybe after they finish their coverage of Rise of Skywalker, they're going to go back and cover Star Wars, Star Wars again? from 1977 again. Yeah. And that's going to be a totally different season from them from the first time they did it because mm-hmm. they're going to come to it in a new way. Now, I had a question about the Orpheus movie. So with all this cinematography happening where the shots are played in reverse, was that done to create a surreal effect while Orpheus is in the underworld? It is more to create a surreal effect when he comes out. Oh, okay. Is it what we see the first time is footage that is reversed. Like he puts gloves on and it looks wrong. Mm-hmm. It's because at the end of the movie, when he is sent back out on his own, the gloves come off and that's the natural motion is him going back to the regular world. Okay. And so the weird things are beforehand because he, in the, the way they present Orpheus is... And it's part of the story is that he is so distracted by his own songwriting and his own poetry and everything else that he doesn't notice when the woman gets taken away. Oh, wow. And in this version, he's literally more obsessed with the figure of death, who is a different woman, Mm. but they can't be together because she's death. And he wants this other woman once he remembers she's there. But when he's sent back out, everything is normal. The shots are reversed, but that's because they were backward the first time. Okay. And so it makes for a weird effect where suddenly everything's normal at the worst point in his story. Mm-hmm. It was fun to watch. No, I'll put that on my list. I try to get through my watch list sometimes. And they're just like, I'm just going to pick whichever one's farthest down ah. and go because <laughs> there's too many. Yeah. Well, uh, my time loop of the week is not a movie. Okay. Because you were kind enough to provide me with that list of things already discussed in the show. And Mm -hmm. you had discussed all the time loops that I'm familiar with (laughs) from movies already. I don't have as broad a base as you do to work from. 
But the, the time loop I do want to talk about is from a podcast that I've been oh. listening to these last couple of weeks. Now, listeners, you have to understand, I am an enormous nerd. And <laughs> yes, in high school, I did play Dungeons and Dragons. And I still have an interest in that role-playing game, interactive storytelling kind of format. So this is a podcast done by the McElroy oh, brothers yeah, yeah. called The Adventure Zone, yes. which is hilarious. Oh, yeah. They did a time loop arc. Yeah. yeah. So there was a whole time loop arc called The Eleventh Hour. And what's interesting from a fiction perspective is the nature of how this is set up because it's set up as an interactive time loop mm -hmm. because it's not a story being told. So it presents itself more as puzzle yeah. than as story. However, what was interestingly done, the fellow running the game who had set up this whole scenario, he found a way to present the players with consequences for going through the time loop. Yes. Because like with Phil and Groundhog Day, there are really no consequences for him going through the time loop. He doesn't have any reason to think time won't advance normally the next time. But in the fiction of the movie and the way the narrative is set up, we get used to the idea along with Phil that, okay, there are no consequences. Everything resets the next exactly. day. And it's very easy to buy into that, especially in a game. And you can adopt a kind of video game mentality to it, we're like, oh, it doesn't matter what I do. And if I mess up, I'll just go back to the start of the level and, and redo it. Mm -hmm. But in this setup, the story included a character who was at the center of why time was looping back on itself. Yeah. And every time there was this time loop, this character became more and more debilitated. Right. And it became clear to the players that, oh, we can't keep doing this no. over and over again. So there was a way to include consequences even as time was resetting. And the last thing about this loop that I really enjoyed at the end of the, the story, this, this it's a, of course, it's a Dungeons and Dragons podcast. Mm -hmm. It's a fantasy setting. So there's magic involved. And the source of this time loop comes from a magic chalice. Yeah. And the chalice itself presents our heroes, our main characters, with the ability to undo past mistakes, to use this time-changing power to undo something from their own past. And interestingly, given everything that happened up to that point with this character was debilitated by the time loops, this idea of things having consequences and having to live with those consequences has been introduced. And so all those players made the decision that their characters wouldn't take that offer. Right. And even though their characters are dunderheads and are <laughs> played for laughs like 80% of the time, here was a moment in the fiction where these characters made a choice to abide by the consequences of their choices. Yeah. And I found it to be a, a really touching way of, of using time loops. And uh, the last thing I'll say about it, the way the kind of spell is broken, there's a whole town that's caught in this loop and the spell has to work itself out so that everyone has to catch up with the rest of time outside mm -hmm. of the town. So it's unlike Brigadoon, which shows up every once right, in a while. All in the town. It's as if Brigadoon was going to suddenly catch up with the rest of the world. <laughs> and there's this celebration, this party that the town has for or the main heroes that they were able to save them from this time loop. And it's a party seven years in the making as this town on the inside of this time bubble waits to catch up with the outside world. So there's this sense of kind of belonging to a place like Phil has with Punxsutawney. Yeah. And there's an investment in the place that happens because of this play with time.
that reminded me of a video game I've already talked about on the show, but I hadn't finished it yet called Life is Strange. Oh, yeah. You're this teenage girl who can reverse time a moment, but as the game goes on, it gets harder and harder to do. Mm. And you figure out as you're going that this storm you keep having a vision of is because of you. Oops. And the end of the story, you literally have the option to sacrifice the entire town in order to be with the person you want to be with. Mm -hmm. And the game gives you that option after putting you through all these other like moral steps and making you save people's lives. You try to keep someone from jumping off a building at one point. Personally, I failed at that one Mm -hmm. because it keeps track of how the conversation goes and whether you remember things she said to you in earlier conversations. Oh, wow. Like, do I remember which family member she got along with? And I didn't. And so she jumped off the building Yikes! and it set up all these horrible things that could happen because of me not doing well at these things. And in the end, it's like, so do you want to be happy or do you want to let all these other people live? Mm-hmm. And at that point in the game, I had made a choice that every decision I made was for Chloe, my friend. Mm-hmm. And whatever got her life better was the right thing. And in that point, it was for me to also be happy. And I'm like, yeah, I have to sacrifice the town. Sorry, everybody. And in Life is Strange too, you're playing as different characters, but they stand at one point outside the ruins of Arcadia Bay. There's a plaque for all the people that were lost. Wow. And I'm like, damn, that is a nice little, just little Easter egg for people who played that game that that is in there. And it asks you as you start the game, if you played the previous game, what was your choice? Mm. So I don't know what it would give you if you saved the town, but Mm. I sacrificed it. So that's what I put. Wow. That was a lot. Mm -hmm. Like at one point, everything seems to be going great. You won this art prize and you're, you leave town and then you find out, no, the storm still hit. And so you have to go back one more time. Mm. And it's, There's a lot. You can do so much. That's why I love this as a genre or a type of storytelling is it takes the structure of stories itself and that repetition that we could put on it by Mm -hmm. reading it again or watching it again and puts a character inside it. And so given consequences, can you still make the same choices or not? Mm -hmm. Or better ones, we hope. Mm. Ah. Really glad to have a nice balance where in this existential trilogy, we have two comedies for one tragedy. <laughs> Groundhog Day is an unalloyed win yeah. for our existentially fraught hero. <laughs> so if people want to hear you talk about other movies, how do they find that? If you want to hear me talk about other movies, you can look up my website, fatherdavidmowry.com. I have a link there to all of my appearances on Movies by Minutes podcasts. If you want to hear me talking about Star Wars, I mentioned Oscar Isaac and Damo Gleason when mm-hmm. I was on for Ex Machina. Uh, I talked a little bit about The Force Awakens, talking about some great table scenes <laughs> in Star Wars movies and, and where Maz's cantina ah. stacks up with other table scenes in Star Wars. So if that's up your alley, I encourage you to check that episode out. Of the Star Wars Minute. Star Wars Minute. Yep. In the meantime, come back tomorrow for Eternal Sunshine. Thank you for listening. The Groundhog Day Project Minute by Minute is just one part of an existential trilogy of podcasts. Tune in every Tuesday for Minutia Ex Machina, every Wednesday for more Groundhog Day, and every Thursday for Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Minute. And you can follow all three shows in one feed. Just search an existential trilogy. Follow this show on Twitter at Groundhog Day MXM and on Instagram and Facebook at Groundhog Day Project. This has been a production of Lemming Drop Studio. You can find links to more at lemmingdrops.com or join the Facebook group Lemming Drops Studio Tour. Also, you can support all my shows at patreon.com slash lemmingdrops. Until next time. First, I
Yeah, you know, Groundhog Day is not a documentary.